to talk about this great test, this test that Abraham went through. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then drop down to verses 17 through 19, and then we'll read the story found in Genesis 22. So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then verses 17 through 19, and then Genesis 22. Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 1 reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And then drop down to verse 17. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. And then if you would turn to Genesis 22... Genesis 22, verse 1 reads, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught its horns in its thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in a place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yairon, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name, that I will certainly bless you. 
I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. A brief prayer. God, thank you for this time that we have to gather together in your name. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scriptures to us and for us, Lord. Reveal your truth. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we will be careful to give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So sometimes in our Christian lives, we are challenged to surrender, surrender to God that which we hold most dearly. And really, I was trying to figure out what do we hold most dearly, how to define that. And, and some of the thoughts that I wrote down is um, that which we rest upon our hopes, even that which God has given us as a gift. But in our lives as a Christian, we are challenged to surrender everything to God. And God promised Abraham a son, but his wife Sarah was not able to have children. And as we are going through this series in Hebrews 11, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we've really slowed down quite a bit for Abraham and Sarah, and this is our fourth week, and just because of so much that has taken place. And as we have gone and we have seen the testing and, and the various opportunities uh, of faith being displayed for us, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all that that, that entails... <laughs> So Abraham chose to have a son with his servant, Hagar, which we discussed last week. However, miraculously, Abraham later had a son by his wife in their old age. And we didn't cover that, but you can go back and read that. They have the reading logs, or you can just turn back a couple of chapters and read that. And, and, and Isaac, his name means laugh, because when Sarah was then again told that she would have a child, she laughed. How could... Someone like me, an old barren woman, and this guy who's old, have a child. And again, then there's the, the contrast between what was going to take place, and Sarah and Hagar didn't get along, and then Hagar and Ishmael are sent out again for the second time. Then, now, we are at perhaps the greatest test that we've read, that we'll, we will read, except for Christ's sacrifice himself, that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, specifically Isaac, specifically his wife's son. So when we read this story, we can ask all sorts of questions. At least I do. The first question is pretty simple. Well, why, 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 why this test? Why would God promise a son, then test him? Why? Why would God do that? Why would God wait so long to give them a child and then ask them to sacrifice that child? What a challenging test for anyone to face. Why would he do that? Yet Abraham obeyed, which leads us to what I think is the next obvious question. Well, how? Okay, well, why would God do that? And how, how was Abraham able to be so obedient? And I think when we read this at first glance, it just seems, it appears that Abraham is like, oh, right, let's go camping and get rid of them. But there's so much more than that, especially when we look at the original 
Hebrew and what it means. But still those questions, even if we understand it and we go through it, why and how, and that's my hope this morning as we consider the, our faith, the good, the bad, the ugly of our faith, how and why, why and how, how can we have faith like this? And what a challenging test for anyone to face. Yeah, Abraham obeyed, which, which as we consider this, why and how, how do we trust God through all of this? How can he or anyone for that matter have that kind of faith? Sometimes it's called blind faith, which is not a great term, I don't think. I understand the meaning behind blind faith, but really there's no part of our faith in our Christian walk that is actually blind. There is someone who is at the heart, at, at, at the heart of it, at the very start, at the very beginning of our faith, there's someone there. It's not, I hope there's a God, there is a God. There may be blind spots in our journey that we have to take steps of faith, but our faith is not blind because that means we're just hoping and wishing there is a God. So as we consider this, the why and the how, I just want to specifically just just up front talk about the difference between testing and tempting. Sometimes they can cross over, they appear, but tests or trials and then temptation. So a test is for the purpose of purging and, or, and strengthening us. That's what a test is. That's what God does. Temptation is for the purpose of enticing us to sin or to pollute us, to weaken us. That is not what God does. God tests us but we are tempted either by our selfish desires or by Satan. Test is proofing. In engineering, it is a term that is to check the structural integrity of a material. And since I really liked engineering, and that's why I went to school, I'm going to tell you something that you don't care about, but I like it. So in, in engineering, there's a test. It's called the diamond pyramid hardness test. Anybody? No? Yeah? Oh, two. Yes. I have friends. All right, anyways, so it was a, in this test, in this materials class that I took, it was one of my favorite classes because we got to break things. And I'm not a very good engineer, but I'm a really good breaker. So one of the, really what the diamond pyramid hardness test is, you take the hardest natural material in the world, which is a diamond, and you press that diamond at various pressures to see how long the material or the product will last. Um, the actual explanation in engineering, if you will, is this. And see if you can catch the difference. The term is, it is not tempting a material. Tempting suggests you are setting up the material to fail. Testing <coughs> is to reveal the strength. That's the diamond pyramid hardness test. So just like in engineering, just like when the machine comes down, this press comes down with a diamond and presses different material at different pressures, and all the smart math, math, mathematicians can measure out when exactly it's going to be crushed, notice that it is not tempting the material to fail. It's simply testing to reveal the strength, and that's what it is for us. And since science is cool, or at least I think it's cool, science always, always, always aligns with God. It never disproves God. It just reveals his truth more and more. And again, God tests in our selfish desires and Satan tempts us. But, and here's the important part. It's very important. If nothing else, 
God can use both the test and the temptation for our good. That's very important. Yes, God is the one who tests, but when we are tempted, regardless if it's our own selfish desires or Satan, God can use that because God is in control. Let's quickly just jump over to James 1. James 1, verses 12 through 18. And James does a better job of explaining what I'm attempting to explain here. James 1, verse, starting at verse 12, it says, God, he says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Side note, that promise is what we read at the end of Genesis 22 of the descendants. But we'll move on. Verse 13, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entices us and drags us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. But do you see that? Don't, don't be mistaken. Temptation, verse 14, comes from our own desires. So then why a test? Again, it's the proofing. It's to reveal what's going on in our life. And I believe, really, what we see here at the heart of a test is what God is doing is revealing to us what do we hold most dear above him. That's what a test is for, also known as idolatry. Specifically to reveal to us what we have the propensity to put in front of God. And that's what Abraham is facing. It would be an obvious choice to put Isaac above everything else. I mean, he's 100 years old and he finally got his son his promised son. Even if we go back to Exodus 20, what are the two commands that later on come to Moses after this? You must not have any other God but me, and you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or, in, or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other God. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands." But do you see that? The first two commands is to, you must not love any other God, but you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. And this is not just because God is jealous, which he is, but he's jealous because he cares for us so much that he knows the best thing that we need is him. But in our humanness, sometimes we like to put other things in front of God. We don't necessarily tend to, mean to, it just kind of happens. And really at the heart of idolatry, no, I don't know anyone in here that carves a little wooden thing and worships or gets a little fish from the sea and worships, but perhaps what we worship is ourselves, is people that we care for. What I wrote down here is what you worship has your heart. And how do you know what you worship? That which has your time, that has your focus. 
that which you are tempted to make happy if it's a person, that which you hold most dear to your heart, that which you set your hopes on, that which you think you can't live without. That has your devotion. And why? Because God loves us so much that he knows that all of those things outside of him will let us down. Now, I know that sounds like an oxymoron. Why would God, as God loves Abraham so much, ask him to give his son, his only son? And how does that show God's love? Because God knows that if we worship something other than him, it will utterly crush us and disappoint us. And God can only be God, and he loves us so much, he knows that anything or anyone that we put over him makes a lousy God. I am a bad God. If you try to make me a God, I am awful. Now, none of you do that. But it's easy for any of us to look to our spouse, to our friends, to anything else. Here's, here's the things that I wrote down specifically. Lousy gods, little g. Spouse, lousy God. Our kids, lousy God. Our work, our job, our title, our money, ourselves will ultimately crush us if we look for that to be the source of happiness. Weddings, of course, is fresh on my mind since there was a wedding last night. But because uh, of that wedding and in the benediction that I give, the closing of the ceremony, there's a line that I say that links to everything that we say and that I mention in premarital counseling. And one of the last lines that I say in this benediction before I pronounce someone husband and wife is I say, let him, Jesus, be who he is supposed to be in your life and not your spouse. Which is reference, of course, your spouse can't be your savior. So let's look at this test. We'll move through it a little quickly, but I want to point out some highlights because if we just look at this, it just seems like God is picking on Abraham, but he's not. He loves him so much, and we'll see this come, how this comes about. So Genesis 22, verse 1, sometime later. So Genesis 21, uh, Isaac is born. We're looking at roughly 20 years. People argue how old Isaac is. Isaac is not a kid. We know that specifically because he's carrying the wood. Most theologians suggest he's between 25 and 30. Some even say as old as 40. I don't know, but he's old enough to carry the wood that he's going to. And here comes the test. It says specifically, God test Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. That here I am is an excitement and a fear and a hope all at the same time. Have you ever had a police officer pull you over before? Am I the only one who speeds? I mean, come on. You know, whenever you see... we. Where when I grew up in Long Beach, we called them Christmas lights because we were poor and those were the only Christmas lights that we saw. That, that's, a, that's a lie, but that's what we called them. But you know how your heart stops? Unless you're a police officer or unless you're really good at talking your way out. But you know how your heart stops and, and, and you know that you were wrong? I mean, come on. You know that you were wrong, but yet you have this fear, this trembling, but yet total respect. So you roll down the window and you say, yes, officer. Right? That, that, that's that feeling. That's the best way that I can describe it. It's, it's this fear, this trembling, this hope, this excitement, not that you're hopeful that a police officer is pulling you over, but you're hopeful that he's going to let you off or she's going to let you off. 
But there's this, this here I am. So if you underline in your Bible or highlight, if you're comfortable with that, or if you just have a brilliant mind, underline that because it's going to pop up again. But I really want to set that up. I really want you to understand that there's hope, there's fear, there's trembling, there's excitement. Probably Abraham has not heard from God. And we'll say that Isaac's 25 just because I like whole numbers or quarter numbers. I know it's not a whole, but you get the point. 25, and, and he probably has not heard from God since the birth of Isaac. So out of the blue, so to speak, Abraham, yes, here I am. Verse 2, take your son, your only son. Where have we heard that before? Jesus. What we are going to see is that this, this relationship between Abraham and Isaac is the foreshadowing of God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ. Your son, your only son, or in John 3.16, your only begotten son, which means your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. So he's saying, just to be clear, I'm not talking about Ishmael up front, the one that you love so much because it's the one from your wife. The one, the promised son, the one, not the one that you tried to work out on your own, that you were trying to help me. And go to the land of Moriah and go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So Moriah in the, in the Old Testament is what it was called in the New Testament. It's Mount Calvary where Christ was crucified. So he says, go to this land and I want you to offer him as, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What that means specifically is that after he is sacrificed and cut in half, because it's still part of the covenant, then you're supposed to burn him. Now, that's a lot. Like, I, I don't know how else to stress that. If any of you have children and God says, take your child, yes, the one you love. I'm not talking about favoritism if you have more than one. And go to the land that I will show you, land of Moriah, and go sacrifice him on a burnt offering on the mountains that I will show you. This is the same language that, he's, he, that God uses to call Abraham away whenever he says, leave the land of your fathers and go where I will show you. So this is not, not, no new language God is using. He's speaking to him the way that he has always spoken to him, although he's giving him different orders. So he calls him to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. So verse three, it says the next morning, Abraham got up early, he saddled his donkey and he took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped the wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set, up, set out for a place God had told him about. We'll stop there just real quick. Early in the morning. I think throughout history, even as I was studying, what I attempt to do, at least when I study, just so you know, is I try to look at the earliest writings of, of what Scripture says from the, from the first generation all the way through, as much, many as I can, just to see what people have said through this. And then, of course, I have my go-to people that I, I read about. But what I, what I notice is that for a long time, the focus on verse 3 was, look at how faithful Abraham was. He got up early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. He took two servants. He got his son. He chopped the wood, and he was ready to go, which is true, which is what he did. 
But as I was reading R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul is one of the more modern guys that, that I read. He was referring to uh, Kierkegaard. I don't know if you know him, but he is a Danish pastor, philosopher of the 1800s. He was one of the great Christian thinkers of that time. And one thing that I really appreciate about him, even though I don't agree with everything that he says, but that's okay, um, is he had this great ability to explore the emotions of people in the Bible. His whole hope was to take people from the Bible and give them emotions that everyone would feel. And as he says, instead of treating them like little creatures that has no mind. And in his book called Fear and Trembling, he wrote um, in a way that looked at different perspectives. He looked at the perspective of why Abraham would respond, the obedient part, but he also looked at the emotion. And this is what he said. Why did Abraham wake up so early in the morning? Excuse me, I'm paraphrasing because to save us time. But why did Abraham wake up so early in the morning? By this time, Abraham was so in tune with God, so sanctified for the Lord, he woke up early in the morning because he had his orders and he was going to, as we call it in our house, obey without delay. We regularly say that to the children. This is the usual view that he mentions. He woke up ready to go. He was like a robot. I must obey. And, he sh- and by only looking at Abraham in this way, he's stripping away all of the humanity in Abraham. But what Kierkegaard says, he suggests that maybe Abraham was just a man, or just a person like you and me, who after God had called him to sacrifice his son, tried to lay in bed and could not sleep a wink, tossing and turning and asking God, why do you want me to do this, God? Can this be you? Is this true? Are you really asking me to sin and kill my son? Really? What kind of God are you? Are you sure? Some commentaries who who piggybacked off this thought said, if if Abraham is anything like me, he probably tried to do various tests. All right, God, I'm going to blink five times. The 16th century, I said, and if I see a vision, I know it's you. I didn't see anything. Let's do it again just to make sure. But can this be true, God? Are you sure? Give me some kind of sign. So really, my, my hope in, in reading this is this regard as I was thinking, he had to be in bed all night long thinking about it. I don't know about you. I know some of you are wonderful sleepers. But for me, if there's anything slightly on my mind, I can't go to sleep. I wake up several times. I would imagine that would be true. So all that to say, let's not pretend that the people in the Bible did not have an emotion, does not have emotions. Abraham couldn't sleep. So what did he do? He got up early in the morning because he hadn't slept, is my opinion. I share with Kierkegaard. And he, he began to prepare the wood. Why would he do that? Why would he go and get his donkey? By the way, he gets his donkey. Who else rolled a donkey? Jesus. He took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped the wood for a fire and a burnt offering and set it in a place. He, he's rich. He's very wealthy. We've discussed that quite a bit. He could have even asked any of his servants to chop up the wood, to saddle the donkey, to get it 
ready. He's a very wealthy guy. But as Kierkegaard suggests, Abraham needed to do something. He couldn't sleep. Sometimes doing a manual task, task helps clear the mind, helps not dwell in the reality of what we must face. I know that's true for me. I love to go and cut the grass. I'm super allergic to grass, but I like to cut the grass because I like to see the little lines. Because I like to say, hey, I did something. Like, yay me. I like to replace the little heads on the sprinklers that I ran over with the lawnmower <laughs> for the fifth time. Yay me. Natalie thinks I'm setting it up just so I have more work to do. But I enjoy doing something with my hands, especially when I worry. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's painting or knitting or something or anything. Go for a walk, but to clear your mind. So I would imagine if it, since Abraham is a real person, he really lived in history, he probably wrestled the whole night, asked God, are you sure? Just like Jesus asked God on the cross, if there's any other way, like we cannot take away the humanity of Jesus. He is both God and he is both human. And he felt all of the emotions. Is there any other way? Abraham, all right, well, I might as well go chop some wood. I'm 100 years old, but let's, let's have at it. So you see that? He, he's wrestling with this. And then verse 4, it goes on. And on the third day, oh, three days. God really likes to do a lot of foreshadowing. And granted, Jesus Christ was dead for three days before he rose. And Isaac doesn't actually die. But actually in his heart, in Abraham's heart, for him, Isaac is dead. I mean, he's going to die. He's about to do it. But the three-day journey, and one of the things that I appreciate about the three-day journey is that this is clear, that this is not a reactionary, obedient response to God. For those of you who are the oldest in your family, when your mom or dad or grandparent called your name, Dallas, yes. Go outside, yes. If you're second, third, fourth, fifth, especially you youngest, well, why? I always argue with my, but just do it. But, but all this to say is, is it's not a reactionary obedient to Christ. Because think about this. For three days, they're traveling. I would imagine the entire three days, Abraham is thinking, how do I get out of this? God, are you sure? Remember that diamond pyramid hardness test that you've already <laughs> forgotten that I told you about? Well, that test is often done repeatedly to help to, to be held on the crushing point for a specific amount of time. It's called a test of endurance. Test is not only done in a response, but it's to see the endurance, the long haul, the, the long time. Maybe you don't care about this diamond pyramid hardness test, but have you ever seen the mattress guy that jumps on the mattress a whole bunch of times and he gets a machine and does it just to prove that it will last? This is what it is. These three days... It, in this testing, it's a test of obedience for the long haul. Because God wants us to put him first over the long haul. And, and it could have been, okay, let's go and, and, and I, I just stab Isaac. Like, just uh, get, uh, get it over with. But this is three days. I can't stress that enough, this, this long walk. So if any of you are in a hardship that's longer than three days, years, maybe even decades, endure. 
I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant. I'm not pretending that everything is great. But enduring Christ, ask your questions. This is the whole reason for the series Good, Bad, and Ugly. Good, Bad, and Ugly is not just you do good or you do bad or you do ugly. God is always good, but at least in my walk, my walk looks like this. All over the place. It's not just like this or like this. It's all like this. If I'm honest, even even within a five-minute period, if you could see in my mind, it's awful. So this is the endurance. So three days of this journey, this whole time he's saying, I don't know how God, but God is going to make a way. And I'm not simply hoping and praying and wishing, but I know that God's word is true and I don't understand, but I have faith and not blind faith because there's someone at the end of my faith. If we go back to Hebrews 11, at the very first three opening verses, this is specifically what we read about faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is a reality. It is evidence of the things we cannot see. That does not mean we're blind. That means it's delayed to see. Verse 2, through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Meaning we weren't there at the beginning when God created everything. But we do believe in the person who created everything. Therefore we know he is true. I appreciate what Charles Stanley said about Abraham. Specifically about the test. Charles Stanley said, Our lack of understanding of why God tells us to do something is never an acceptable excuse for not doing it. Our lack of understanding of why God tells us to do something is never an acceptable excuse for not doing it. Or in other words, just because you don't understand doesn't give you a reason why you shouldn't be obedient. So as we continue on, pay attention to how he responds in verse 5. And this is the how. Now we're entering in the how. The why is to reveal, to test us, to help us put God in his rightful place. Not that any of the other things that we had mentioned, family and friends and finances, reputation and all that isn't important. It is, but it can't be our God. So the why is because God loves us so much that he wants to make sure we put him first, not just because he's a greedy, jealous God. It's because he knows that's what's best for us. And any other God that we put in that place will end up corrupting us, to be honest with you. So the how. Now let's look at the glimpses of how. In verse 5 it says, Abraham says, stay here with the donkey. He's talking to his servants. Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there. And then we will come right back. Do you see that? He tells the servants to stay. The boy and I will travel, we will worship there, and then we will come right back. In his heart of hearts, even though Abraham is struggling, even though he doesn't know how, he believes that both he and Isaac somehow, someway are going to come back. If you go back to Hebrews 11, verse 17, this is specifically what the author writes about Abraham's faith, why he's in this hall of faith. Verse 17, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. 
not tempting him, testing him. Abraham had received God's promise and was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. In verse 19, and here's the key. Abraham reasoned. He's very logical. He worked through it. It wasn't blind faith. It was faith and reason that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did not, did receive his son back from the dead. Do you see that? I don't know how, but it makes sense to me because God has never let me down that even if Isaac dies, God was able to bring him back to life again. Now for us, perhaps we're used to the resurrection because we are post-resurrection believers. There has never been a resurrection in the history at this time. He doesn't know how. He doesn't even know, not sure what resurrection looks like, but he knows that God is able to do that. And that's why he says, then we will come right back. So the how. Notice that Abraham is 100 years old at this time. And it's not his first test. So a side note that I wrote for myself, get in, get in the habit of obeying God in the little things. Obey the small things, and when the big things come, you have experience of obeying God, and more importantly, his faithfulness. Just quickly, we'll move quickly just to look at it. Uh, a few of Abraham's tests leading up to this point. The first one I mentioned, God tells him to leave his home, homeland and be a stranger in the land of Canaan. He did. Not well. It was delayed. He followed his father for a little bit, but he eventually did. Once he does, Abraham leaves and immediately encounters a famine, so he leaves Egypt. He didn't check in with God. He said, uh-oh, that was a test. The Egyptian sees his wife. He lies out. She's my sister. A Abraham then faces incredible odds in the battle of, of the kings to go and save Lot. He has promised a son. That's the test. He doesn't wait. He has a son with Hagar. He's not doing too good, but you know. If, you, if you're adding it up, he's batting about 250 now. The king of Gear captures Sarah. We didn't read that, but he lies again. Oh, that's my sister. You notice that? I almost, I almost took an extra week just to talk about how old sins circle back to get us if we don't put them to, death, to bed and kill them. He, you notice that he never repented of, of lying, so he, it just becomes a habit to lie. And then on and on and on. So this is not the first time that he's tested. So the reason why, part of the reason why, how can he have faith is because he has practiced obeying God in all the things. Not well, not perfectly. He blew it a lot of times, but he knew I'm going to do it. In the Talmud, which is the Jewish text or the history text, which shows the rabbinic debates and arguments and teachings from the 2nd and 5th century, lists out 12 different tests that he has and very specific things and people argued if it was a failed test or a half failed test or a past test. It, it's kind of obnoxious, but you know whenever you have a hero but you ignore all the bad things? You know, for me growing up, I had a couple of sports heroes that I, I loved them whenever I found out that they were really bad people. are like, who cares? They're a great hockey player, baseball player. That's kind of it. But, but I think the beauty of it as Christians, as we can look at Abraham and say, yep, he was a man. He did some good. He did some bad. He did some ugly. 
that God is faithful. So just quickly moving on, verse 6, Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, just like Christ carried the cross. He carried the fire and the knife. Can you imagine that, just knowing the instruments of what you are going to do of obedience? And the two of them walked together. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Now, if I'm completely honest, this is where I lose it. This is probably where I would lose my nerve. Honestly, I don't think if you're asking me to kill Ryder, it's not going to happen. Truly. Ryder's my son, just in case. I think you put that together. But not going to happen. But, but if I was asked, this is the point where if my son said, Dad, what are we going to sacrifice here? Do you feel that weight? Like, that's heavy. And yet, in his obedience, in his faith, verse 8, he says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. It actually translates in Hebrew, and I'll translate it, what he actually says The Lord will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The Lord will provide himself, which he does on the cross. So whenever we ask, oh God, why why are you letting all these bad things happen to good people? The only good person that lived on earth, we killed him. And way back then, Abraham knew, and it's not just foreshadowing, he knew the Lord would provide himself the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. He knew. So when they arrived at the place, verse 9, where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, very realistic what is Isaac thinking at this time? This is one of the sections where I wish there was a little side note. And then Isaac yelled and screamed. Or Isaac said, uh, dude, bro, what are you doing? Or anything. But that's not the point. Even Isaac's obedience to this. He believed in his father because his father believed in God. Because he believed in God. That's why if you go back to Exodus, when when we read about the, the several generations, thousands of generations will be blessed. That is what the reference is to. I believe because my father believes in you and I also believe in the father. So Abraham picks up the knife. He's legitimately going to stab his son. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And his reply is exactly as it was in verse 1. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. That fear, that trembling, that excitement, that, that fear, that, that all of the emotions that he had when God first called him to do it. He did not yell out, what do you want now? Leave me alone. Or say, oh, you again? You're here to make my life worse? 
I do wonder if in our testing, God calls us out, calls to us, but we're so upset that we're in the middle of the test, we actually ignore him instead of saying, here I am. We say, go away, or we ignore him. So if you are in a test, and I am not suggesting again that your test is an easy one, you may even be being tempted by yourself or by Satan. I don't know what everyone is going through. I do know many of your stories and what you're going through. If you're in the middle of it, say to God, yes, here I am. He is faithful. I'm not saying he's going to remove you from the situation you're facing. I'm simply saying he will speak to you. And how can we do that? By being obedient in the small things. In the small things. So at that moment when God calls Abraham, he says, don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel said, do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God, which should be translated, now that you know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from even your son, your only son, And you don't have to do that because I'm going to give up my son, my only son. And then they name that place the Lord will provide, which he will. So as we close, just some things to consider as as we are in our faith journey. The reason for this series is why? Because God loves you. He's revealing to you who you are and what you put above him. And he's not being mean to take it away. He's being loving to help you put him where he belongs. And then the how. How can we have faith like this? Be obedient in the small things. I know I say this like a broken record player. Make the next step an obedient one. Even if it's a small crawl. What's that one thing you can do now that will help you believe and trust? Because our faith is not a blind faith. There's someone at the end of our faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for Abraham's life and thank you that you recorded it for us, for our good, Lord, and and that um, we know that you won't ask us to do something like this specifically, but you do test us because you love us, because you want to reveal in us, to proof us, Lord, so that way we can continue to be more like your son. That is your desire. Thank you that for the fact that you'll forgive us when we fall short of that, because we do and we will. And yet, Lord, there are some times where our obedient step is a faithful one, and we thank you for that as well. We're thankful that you sent your son, your only son, to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. Lord, all we do is confess our sins and believe that Jesus died for our sins. He's Lord of our life, Lord. That's what we want. So Lord, for anyone in here who is in a, in a season of hurting or doubt or anything, Lord, will, will you help all of us? Will you help that person say, yes, Lord, here I am. Help us listen to see as you instruct us, Lord. Thank you that you do not move on from from us in that way that you are patient with us, Lord. So, Lord, as we continue to walk and grow in your grace and mercy, 
we will be careful to give you glory. It's not because we are such wonderful people, but you are an amazing God. So Lord, as we sing a couple more songs to you, will you just help us wrestle with the the why and the how and ultimately put you where you belong? And Lord, we know that it'll be ongoing, but we're thankful that you are faithful. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.